Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Uh, today's program um, is titled Current Perspectives on the Treatment of Relapsed Refractory Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL. And this is part two of a two-part series, Living with CLL. And uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between the CLL Society and Cancer Care, and we're delighted to be partnering with them. Um, it's made a big difference in reaching all of you on the call today. Um, we also have a number of other both cancer and blood cancer organizations that also help to spread the word, but I have to say um, it's a pleasure working with the CLL Society, and they are the only specific organization that actually works with um, people living with CLL. It's all, I mean, all of the others do have programs for them, but they have very specific programs, and you'll hear more about that um, during the program itself. So um, because of your interest in this topic and um, are trying to let, get, spread the word as much as possible to all of you, we have over 361 participants on the call today, so you're a large group. Um, and you come from all over the United States, so you come from uh, rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants on today's call from Canada, Germany, and the United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well, or is a global call. And um, the, today's program is supported by AbbVie, a grant from Genentech, Gilead, Pharmacyclics LLC, and Jensen Biotech, Inc., and an educational grant from Veristem Oncology. And I want to thank them for supporting really this, not just today's program, but this two-part series. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Lindsay Roker, and Dr. Roker is a hematology medical oncology fellow, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Roker is going to be presenting an overview of CLL, including testing to inform your treatment choices, first-line treatment options, treatment of relapsed refractory CLL, and communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roker. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I really appreciate um, the introduction and, and being here with all of you today. So first I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the biology of CLL and do sort of a CLL 101 as, a, as an overview. So CLL is a cancer of a B cell, which is a type of white blood cell that is normally born in the bone marrow and then leaves and goes into the peripheral blood and can take up residence in either the lymph nodes or the spleen. And a normal B cell um, kind of goes through this process and helps the body fight off infections. And we know that CLL arises when there's a series of changes in the genetic material or what we call mutations that accumulate so that the cells do two things. The first is that they don't die after a normal lifespan in the same way that a B cell would. And the second is that um, they start cloning themselves or making copies of themselves. And the consequence is that they can fill up the space in the bone marrow. They can spill out into the peripheral blood so that the white blood cell count can be very high. And they can also take, take up space in the lymph nodes and the spleen, which can cause people to present with um, big lymph nodes that they feel, either in their neck or their armpits or their groin, or a big spleen. And the spleen can, um, as it starts growing, um, can either cause some discomfort under the left ribs or can um, actually make people feel like they're full sooner than they would normally be after taking just a couple bites of, of food. And the reason that that happens is because the spleen and the stomach share space within the abdomen. So as the spleen gets bigger, the stomach kind of shrinks down um, and results in that symptom. We know that CLL is the most common leukemia diagnosed in the United States with 20,000 new cases every year. Um, the median age, meaning the middle age, is 72 at the time of diagnosis, though um, people range from um, much, much younger to much older at the time of diagnosis, and we see patients in our clinic of all ages. Um, 
we uh, typically think about starting treatment. So when people are diagnosed, often they um, enter a period of watchful waiting. And that it that means that we see them regularly about every three months, and we check their blood counts and make sure that we um, are are watching carefully so that we understand when symptoms from CLL are about to develop and intervene at the right time. So treatment for CLL is often started when patients do one of five things. The first two are based on blood counts. So we can see either a low hemoglobin, which is also called anemia, or a low platelet count. And if either of those things happen, we know that that's a a reason to start CLL-directed therapy. The third thing is patients can experience big lymph nodes that are either bothersome um, because they don't like patients don't like how they look or feel, they're causing discomfort, or they're in a bad spot and causing um, abnormalities in other in the ability for other organs to work, like the kidneys or the liver. The fourth thing is a big spleen, and we talked a bit about those symptoms, but that can be discomfort under the left ribs or um, a sensation that one is getting full after just a few bites of eating. And then the fifth is the most subjective, but that's symptoms that develop. So patients can have fevers or chills, night sweats where they're waking up drenched and having to change their pajamas, um, weight loss, fatigue, And those are symptoms that we talk to patients about at each visit to make sure we understand um, how patients are doing. And if they meet any of those indications, we talk about therapy. So in the front line or the first treatment option, um, we're, we're increasingly moving away from chemotherapy and toward the use of what we call novel agents, which means usually pill based therapies that really work in a targeted way to affect the CLL cells and either prevent them from dividing or kill those cells. The discussion used to be relatively straightforward because ibrutinib was the only medication approved in the frontline setting, and we use that for most of our patients. We now um, have a an approval for the use of venetoclax in combination with a drug called obinutuzumab, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, um, for patients who are older than 65 or have other medical problems. And um, that's based on data that was actually just presented a couple weeks ago, so that that FDA approval is very, very recent. But we're still, I think, as a medical community, figuring out exactly for whom um, ibrutinib is the right choice and for whom we should try venetoclax and obinutuzumab. That being said, they have different side effect profiles and work differently. So it's definitely worth a discussion with your team um, about which which drug makes the most sense. Um, in once once a patient's been treated either with ibrutinib or venetoclax, the and and those drugs are given kind of in a fashion where you take them as long as they're working, specifically for ibrutinib. So um, we'll talk a little bit about them separately just to to avoid confusing confusion. So ibrutinib is a medicine that's given once daily as a pill, and patients generally take it for as long as it's working or um, for as long as they can tolerate it without any side effects. And this is an uh, an important point to to bring up. Ibrutinib does have some side effects, but often if you t- are in close communication with your healthcare team, there are things that um, we can work on either modifying the dose or briefly holding the drug or trying other things to really help with some of those side effects. Um, and that's really an important time to be in very close conversation with your healthcare team to really know um, so that they know and can help deal with any side effects. For venetoclax, the recent approval was granted um, in combination with obinutuzumab, which is an anti-CD20 antibody. And what that means is it's an IV medicine that um, that specifically targets B cells, of which CLL cells are a, a type, and it helps the immune system fight off those those cells. So it's considered an immunotherapy. And the combination of um, 
of venetoclax and obinutuzumab can be given for, as I said, older patients with other medical problems um, in, in, for a year. So it's a fixed duration of therapy, and the idea is that you get six months of the obinutuzumab and a full year of venetoclax. So for six months, you're getting two medicines, and for six months, you're getting only one. And after that time, the thought is that you can stop therapy, which is obviously very appealing for patients who um, who don't want to take a medicine every day for the foreseeable future. Um, so there are definitely advantages. Some of the pieces that we're still trying to figure out are how well other medicines work after that therapy if patients do have disease that progresses after the venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And we don't really have great studies to look at medicines after venetoclax and obinutuzumab. So part of the um, part of the discussion is when is this appropriate and, and when will we have data to say that other medicines work well after this because obviously we want to make sure that we're not just treating the CLL um, correctly right in the beginning, but also treating it correctly through the whole course of someone's treatment. So after um, ibrutinib or venetoclax, there are um, additional options. And when I think about novel agents, I put them in three big buckets um, and then also have a bucket with immunotherapy, which are those IV medicines that help the immune system fight off the, the CLL cells. So the first bucket is BTK inhibitors which ibrutinib is one of them. There are also other medicines that are not FDA-approved for CLL but are approved in other, me in other um, types of lymphoma, which include acalabrutinib. And then there are also clinical trials um, looking at other medicines in this class of drugs. So if a patient has um, had ibrutinib first and they stopped the medicine because they were having issues um, with tolerating the treatment, meaning having side effects that made it hard to keep taking it, sometimes switching to another um, BTK inhibitor is an option because they work similarly but have different side effect profiles. So sometimes that's an option. Um, the second bucket is a BCL2 inhibitor. That's venetoclax. So typically, or traditionally, after patients have been on ibrutinib, if it stops working because the CLL is getting worse, our next drug has been venetoclax, and we've used that either alone or in combination with rituximab, which is a different type of anti-CD20 medicine or immunotherapy. And um, that's a combination that we know works well after patients have been on ibrutinib and it no longer works. The third category is called, uh, they're called PI3K inhibitors. And there are two medicines approved in this category. One is called idelalithib, and that's approved in combination with rituximab, which is one of those um, anti-CD20 medicines. And the second is called duvalisib, which is approved alone. And those are medicines that um, have been studied after patients have received ibrutinib, and um, we know that those can be effective in that setting. So there are the, kind of these three big buckets of novel agents or pill-based therapies that you take um, either for as long as they're working or for a fixed amount of time, depending on which regimen you choose. There are also other possibilities. For some patients, chemotherapy remains on the table and um, can be used safely in this disease. Um, and then there are some less commonly used um, targeted agents, which um, are definitely worth discussing, but um, I think kind of outside of our scope. And then the, the last bucket is um, those anti-CD20 medicines, and those can be used sometimes just alone in patients who have uh, received other therapies before um, and can be uh, given in that setting. So I think this is kind of a menu of options, and this is where it's really important to talk to your healthcare team about your um, priorities and your preferences because a lot of these medicines have unique side effect profiles and are given in unique ways such that some are given for as long as they're working, some are given for a fixed amount of time, some are pill-based therapy, and some are IV-based therapy. And um, 
we we have a lot of drugs that work pretty well. So it's important to talk to your healthcare team about, um, you know, what will work best with your lifestyle and and what other medical problems you have that should be considered when making a treatment decision because those are really the factors that we bring in when we're thinking about how to safely and effectively treat patients. So I think um, communication in CLL, all medical problems, but especially in CLL, is really important um, to make sure that we're choosing something that works well with your lifestyle and works well with um, with your preferences. So I would encourage everyone, as they're thinking about treatment decisions, to really be upfront with their team. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dr. Roca. That was very informative and comprehensive and a wonderful, really setting the stage for the whole program and lots of information. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Alexi Danilov. Dr. Danilov is Associate Professor of Medicine, Knight Cancer Institute, Oregon Health and Science University. And Dr. Danilov is going to be addressing importance of retesting in determining treatment for second and third line treatments, current perspectives on new and emerging treatments for CLL, clinical trial updates and the role of clinical trials, and questions to ask and re-ask your healthcare team. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Danilov. Um, thank you very much, Karen. So, um, first, I want I want to go back to uh, something um, Dr. Rocker said, and uh, um, during the, at the time of the diagnosis of the, of the diagnosis of CLL, um, we um, uh, we order a set of tests which helps us better characterize the disease. So, CLL is a very heterogeneous condition, and no patient is the same, and um, uh, that uh, that is because of the whole variety of uh, uh, DNA or genetic uh, parameters which can characterize those cells. So typically at diagnosis or at least before we introduce first treatment for CLL, we try to characterize those cells genetically. And there are certain tests that we uh, rely on in that, such as karyotyping when we look at uh, uh, dividing cells, uh, fluorescent inside of uh, uh, hybridization of fish test when we look We'll, we'll look uh, at chromosomal abnormalities by fluorescence technique, and we also test something called IGH mutational status, which basically further better characterizes the cells for us and uh, gives us some prognostic indication as to how the how 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 uh, CLL will behave. Um, so th- th- those tests also have an impact on therapy. So there are certain genetic lesions which do not lend themselves well to chemotherapy, chemoimmunotherapy treatment. So, for example, deletion 17P, uh, CLL with deletion 17P, or mutation in P53 gene does not uh, respond as well to chemotherapy or, or immunotherapy, CD20 antibodies, as um, other types of CLL. Uh, therefore, it's very important to to um, uh, characterize CLL fully prior to introducing any therapy. And that's certainly true still of second and third line therapy as well. And uh, every time we treat CLL, and uh, many patients will undergo more than one type of therapy, we test uh, for uh, CLL genetics by fish, karyotyping. Certain tests actually do not change, such as IGHV mutational status. It, um, it never changes despite the therapies, but certain genetic abnormalities may appear during or after therapy uh, in, uh, in CLL. CLL may evolve, and therefore it's all very important to con- conduct this testing prior to um, every every therapy. So what's interesting, though, is that some of the novel therapies, such as uh, uh, Dr. Rocker mentioned, such as Ibrutinib, BTK inhibitor, Venetoclax, BCL2 inhibitor, and PIC kinase inhibitors, they do not make as much of a distinction between um, uh, the CLL subtypes, uh, even though CLL, high-risk CLL, which we uh, typically now refer to as deletion 17P with that genetic abnormality, they may May, uh, the, 
the, the, that type of CLL still um, uh, may respond less well to some of this treatment. But for example, in the past, we made a big distinction between mutated and unmutated IGHV, but some of those novel therapies actually seem to have equal efficacy in low, in, uh, uh, low and high risk disease based on that parameter. But so nevertheless, the message I want to I wanna, uh, give out is that um, testing, genetic testing for CLL is very important. It does uh, guide our therapy, and uh, it should be performed every time um, uh, a new treatment is introduced. Um, so, um, in terms of uh, uh, the new development of in the field of CLL and what are the current perspective on uh, um, on treatment in CLL is uh, there, there's quite a little bit of development which goes uh, in several directions and uh, I, we don't have time to discuss all of this but I might uh, highlight some. So Dr. Rocker mentioned BTK inhibitors um, and uh, she mentioned ibrutinib which is uh, the now called a first generation BTK inhibitor. So it is associated with a plethora of adverse events and about actually 20 to 30 percent of patients who start on ibrutinib develop adverse events which force them to discontinue. And they can be very different, you know, from atrial fibrillation to elevated blood pressure to joint pains and muscle pains and fatigue. So there is an effort to improve on that. And uh, um, ibrutinib by itself is uh, not very selective. So in addition to BTK, it, it also targets many other um, um, what we call kinases or proteins involved in cell signaling. Um, so several drugs have now been developed which um, hopefully uh, I expect it to uh, be more selective towards the BTK as the target that we are most interested in. And some examples are drugs such as acalabrutinib. Acalabrutinib is actually approved in therapy of mental cell lymphoma, and it is an NCCN guidelines for therapy of CLL as well, uh, based on the data in uh, large um, early phase trials. Uh, there are a couple of emerging, emerging agents in that space, uh, and I will mention Zanubrutinib, which is undergoing registration trials right now, also a selective BTK inhibitor. Then there is Tirabrutinib, which um, is undergoing some phase one combination studies. So um, the hope with those new selective BTK inhibitors is because of their uh, increased um, uh, in, in selectivity and improved uh, um, uh, profile towards BTK, they may have uh, lower side effects and possibly greater efficacy. So we don't know that yet for sure. This is being investigated, but nevertheless, those drugs have actually already entered the, the, the market and uh, we use them in treatment of mental cell lymphoma and CLL as well, both on clinical trials and off clinical trials. Now, another um, aspect that is being investigated is how do we stop treatment with ibrutinib or even new BTK inhibitors? They're also given indefinitely until disease progression or until adverse events. So the hope is that if we are able to um, uh, enhance our efficacy, um, uh, then we will. Uh, then uh, there is an opportunity to stop the drug and for and uh, prevent uh, uh, disease resistance to BTK inhibitor. So, in this context, there there, there has been several attempts, and uh, one uh, study in particular was published recently in New England Journal of Medicine, a study from MD Anderson from Nitin Jane, which actually combined venetoclax and ibrutinib. And what what uh, the investigators found is very uh, high responses and very deep responses where we achieve so-called minimal residual disease where uh, patients are actually able to stop both drugs and continue off therapy. Just It is the same concept as we did with chemotherapy in the past. However, now it, the, all of this is not given uh, IV and not given intravenously, but instead is, is, uh, th those are all pill medications. Um, uh, large cooperative groups are building 
on that, and they're investigating a triple regimen where the Nidoclacks and the Brutinip are combined with an anti-CD20 agent, uh, which Dr. Rocker also mentioned, called abinituzumab, so so-called IVO regimen. And uh, those regimens are now being compared against the Brutinib um, in uh, large trials uh, by the cooperative oncology groups. Um, so um, uh, recently there, uh, a pre a, there, there was a report on a trial called the SEND, uh, which uh, combined um, acalabrutinib with a CT20 antibody and compared to bendamustin and rituximab. So there, there was also advantage in uh, relapsed refractory CLL, um, uh, which may lead to you know um, uh, potentially expanded use of this agent and agent and. CLL. So um, that that is uh, what is being done in the space of uh, brutantizing kinase inhibitors. Uh, Dr. Rocker mentioned that BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax was recently studied and previously untreated CLL and is now approved for that indication. Um, uh, there, there is interest in uh, further development of so-called PI3K inhibitors, including idelalisib and devilisib. They are approved uh, in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. However, those drugs are associated with some late adverse events uh, of uh, autoimmune nature, such as uh, inflammation of the bowel, inflammation in the lungs, which somewhat limits uh, their use sometimes in some patients. And so there are several uh, um, uh, in investigations going on in that area, uh, trying to use alternative dosing regimens or combinations of those drugs where they don't need to be administered for a long time, hoping to achieve deeper responses and prevent disease resistance. So overall, um, um, clinical trials is, is how we uh, make progress in the field of treatment of CLL, and I would certainly encourage um, everybody to look into potential participation in clinical trials. Um, the bar for clinical trials in our field is very high right now, uh, so we certainly expect, expect most of them, clinical, all these clinical trials, to have therapeutic intent, including phase one. So the, there are uh, several types of therapeutic trials. Phase one trials ask the question whether the treatment or combination is safe. It typically, that such a trial will have few participants. It has some standard dose escalation design, um, and uh, it has very careful monitoring for drug toxicities because that's really what those trials are trying to establish. What are the toxicities of those drugs? But uh, phase one trials also ask, ask the question uh, whether the treatment is effective, and we um, most phase ones in hematology now expect the treatment to be effective, and how such treatment might interact uh, with, with food, for example. So uh, phase two clinical trials would be the next step, and the primary, we already, that's at the point where we already have some information about the drug safety. And um, at that point, we ask uh, whether the treatment is effective. So those trials typically enroll more participants, and up to 100, and really, really evaluate response to treatment in a more formal way. Uh, those trials still um, uh, answer the question whether the treatment is safe. And then the next step would be phase three trials, where a question is being addressed whether treatment is better, or at least as good, as uh, the standard of care that already exists. And that, such trials typically um, enroll many participants in, on, on the order of hundreds, sometimes a thousand um, um, participants. Uh, response is being evaluated in a very formal way. You know, lymph, uh, the, question is, the question is being asked whether lymph nodes get smaller, whether blood counts recover, how long the drug works for, and still the safety uh, is being evaluated uh, very carefully um, as well. So uh, as a, a, an important component of uh, every clinical trial is an informed consent. And the informed consent uh, lists the study contacts, uh, gives the study overview, talks about study procedures, and study risks as well. So that's a uh, very important piece of the study, which uh, participants see 
Um, and um, uh, the questions to think about uh, when agreeing or not agreeing to a clinical trial is why is the study being done? Uh, what's new about the approach? Uh, will the study compromise uh, uh, cure? Uh, that's certainly not something we want to do. Uh, that may be a question to ask the clinical team. Um, uh, will the study uh, close up access to standard treatment options? It should never be the case. Uh, and, of course, what are the side effects of therapy? So those are uh, uh, potential questions to discuss with the clinical trial team. So, um, but anyway, in all treatment of CLL, I think it is very important to keep talking to the uh, provider team, to the uh, uh, to the team of clinicians regarding uh, the CLL characteristics, has anything changed, uh, what potential approaches are there, what are new emerging approaches. One approach which I haven't mentioned, which is also gaining some speed, is CAR T cells. I'm not going to talk about it much, but that's one of the new uh, cellular therapy options, which uh, uh, also is um, uh, having some very good results in CLL, very different than drugs and targeted therapies. So, um, uh, talking to CLL specialists about um, individual, individualized approaches which are available for um, uh, patients with CLL is very important. Anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Danlove. Again, very comprehensive and informative and um, and a lot of very important information for people to think about and, and really work with their healthcare team on in terms of the questions they may ask. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Patricia Kaufman. Ms. Kaufman is the co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, Inc. She's also worked closely with us on this program today and um, has really helped to, to spread the word to all of you about it. And so um, we are now going to hear from her. And um, if you're not familiar with the CLL Society, it's a wonderful resource for all of you. So uh, it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Kaufman. The CLL Society is here to help. The CLL Society is CLL-specific. We are laser-focused on CLL. Our website provides tools enabling you to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL, to develop a deep knowledge of the CLL treatment landscape, and to bring you into a community where having CLL is a normal part of everyday life. Our website features conference coverage and breaking news on topics important to CLL patients and their caregivers. Especially if you are newly diagnosed, please come to our website. As there is a proven survival advantage to being in the care of a CLL expert, please check out our Expert Access Program. Expert Access is a free service designed to provide those with a CLL diagnosis who are not seeing a CLL expert an opportunity to spend 30 minutes in a no-cost, HIPAA-compliant, online, face-to-face -face consultation with a CLL expert who will assess their CLL-related medical records and address their three most pressing questions. A written consultation summary will provide you with talking points to share with your current healthcare provider. Expert Access will serve 150 patients this year, so sign up sooner rather than later as this program is finite. Our quarterly newsletter, the CLL Tribune, features original articles contributed by patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers, as well as regular columns titled Ask the CLL Expert, Ask the Pharmacist, Ask the Laboratory Scientist. The occasional poem, work of art, song, etc., will appear in future issues, and we invite you to contribute to the CLL Tribune. We are now introducing four new online interactive webinars on topics of critical interest to CLL patients and their caregivers, which begin in June. Topics to be covered are the financial toxicity of CLL, dealing with the CLL emotional roller coaster end-of-life, hospice, and palliative care, and we are hoping to devote our final 2019 webinar to the unique concerns of military veterans with CLL. Our 30-plus patient support groups meet mostly monthly across the country, and they offer support, education, and companionship, so don't go it alone. Check out our website for one near you. So there you have it, support groups, tools, webinars, forums, breaking news, and much more. If you have questions, contact the CLL Society at support at CLLsociety.org. Now I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Coffin. That was really um, excellent and a wonderful resource for everybody on the call 
today. It's a, it's a great resource, and I think also the um, expert access program is, is terrific. It's a wonderful feature. Um, and I want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions. So if you would please, some of you are already posting questions online, and but we're going to have um, everyone um, in just a few minutes normal explain to everybody how to queue for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Cancer care is a national um, organization. Um, it's staffed primarily by oncology social workers, all master's level trained, and they provide a, a number of different services from practical and financial assistance to co-payment assistance. And we also, you can contact us um, at uh, on our Hope Line, 800-813-4673, or go to our website, cancercare.org. And you actually can, um, you know, talk about concerns or questions you may have. Um, you either may post them on the website or you may call and discuss it with one of our social workers here. We also offer support groups, and we have both telephone support groups and online support groups. And at the moment, we have 138 online support groups. And the online support groups are for everyone. Um, they, they cover so many different types of cancers. They also uh, are hematologic cancers. Um, they also are programs for young adults, for middle-aged adults, older adults, um, for caregivers, for spouses and partners, for adult children, so really um, covering the, uh, or for parents, um, so really covering the, the gamut of, of people's lives and different types of experiences with, with uh, cancer, different types of cancers as well. Um, and those are all free, and they're all uh, professionally uh, moderated by our uh, oncology social workers. And indeed, um, the online support groups are not on a specific time, so you can post any time of the day or night. Um, the telephone groups do meet at a specific time. So that's just to be aware of that in terms of just where you are and time differences and things like that. Um, and we have these education programs that we offer quite frequently on a lot of different types of topics, on blood cancers, on solid tumors, on um, just coping. We did a program on survivorship, so all different types of topics that we do them on. Um, and we also have publications, and we also have a website that you can visit. So with that all being said, um, have a kind of thumbnail sketch of all the things that you can access from Cancer Care. I'm now going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take, again, as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions at the very end of the program, I'm going to actually give you resources and ways to get your questions answered. So, Norma. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on the touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, to ask a question, please press star, then one. So we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and I'm going to ask... So I'm going to ask this question of uh, Dr. Roker to start with it. Um, what is the most likely next step for patients who progress after some period of remission induced by 1-5 combination of first-line therapy? Is there a role for P13K inhibitors in that eventuality? Uh, so... Is it asking, can, I'm sorry, so after you've progressed on ibrutinib and venetoclax, is that the I-V, is that what it asked? I think so, yes. Okay. So um, after ibrutinib and venetoclax, I think there are a couple of um, things to think about. The first is we know that PI3K inhibitors are uh, FDA approved for that setting and have data for efficacy um, after both ibrutinib and venetoclax. The second is that um, there are an increasing number of clinical trials really targeting the um, patients who have had both ibrutinib and venetoclax, and that might be a great opportunity to talk to your provider about um, whether there are any trials available either in the center that you're seen at or in centers nearby, um, as sometimes um, evaluate, you know, looking toward new strategies can be the most effective. Um, but certainly PI3K inhibitors are um, a, a very valuable option for patients who have had both ibrutinib and venetoclax. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Demelov, do you want to add anything? 
Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, the the question is, uh, how did that progression happen? You know, is it if the, if uh, if uh, it happened a few years after uh, you came off uh, of Ivorutin Vinitoclax, there's a potential to retreat with the same regimen, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, PICK inhibitors and clinical trials for sure is um, are all options to consider. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, and this one is for Dr. Danilov to start with. How often have you seen abnormally high liver function test results in CLL patients? Also, CLL in the liver with the rest of the liver tissue normal, cause of abnormal liver function. Yeah, that that does happen. It happens more often with lymphomas, such as mental cell lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, than with CLL. Um, it's a little bit unusual for CLL uh, to do that, but certainly not unheard of, so it, it is certainly possible that uh, uh, that's the case. Um, it really depends on an, on an individual um, uh, situation. Sometimes, uh, I, if if I see liver involvement, potential liver involvement, I sometimes do proceed with liver biopsy, given that it's fairly unusual um, to make sure that there is no transformation to other type of lymphoma or you know you know um, other type of a problem than CLL in the liver. Um, so. Um, has it happened? Yes. Is it common? Certainly not. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Roker, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that's an excellent overview. And so here's another online question um, for Dr. Roker. When would you choose a targeted therapy over chemotherapy or vice versa when you have relapsed CLL? So we know that chemotherapy... Um, is a good option for a subset of patients who are younger um, than 65 and have what we call a mutated IGHV, which is one of the tests that's performed to kind of characterize the biology of CLL. And for those patients, chemotherapy is still um, a, an effective um, option that really um, may even offer long-term uh, disease remission without needing ongoing therapy. So I think in that setting, chemotherapy is certainly still on the table. We're increasingly using novel agents um, in the relapse and refractory setting um, because they tend to be a little bit better tolerated, um, although that's not the case for everyone. And I think that a lot of the discussion about chemotherapy versus novel agents depends on what you've had before Um and how well the things that you've had before worked and, and why you're not on them anymore. So in general, I think um, there is a role for chemotherapy, but I think that increasingly we're using novel agents um, to treat CLL. Dr. Demlock, do you want to add anything? No, I, I completely agree. I think the role of chemotherapy in relapse setting is really going down. Uh, novel agents are becoming more standard in relapse setting. Um, in frontline setting, yeah, as Dr. Rocker explained, there are certain patients who could benefit from it. Excellent. Thank you. Wow, this is amazing, amazing questions, wonderful speakers. So, a winning team here. Um, another question from one of our online participants um, for Dr. Love. How do monoclonal antibodies differ from targeted therapies? How do doctors choose one over the other, and can you use them concurrently? And again, I, that's a complicated question, so particularly right. in a general way. Yeah, so, so yeah, I think a lot of this is arbitrary, what we call what. Um, and we call targeted therapies, targeted therapies and not chemotherapies, but uh, they are really chemicals. So the simple way to think about that is uh, chemotherapies is uh, chemotherapy is a treatment which damages genetic material, damages DNA, and that's how it works. Uh, immunotherapy or antibody therapy is really an antibody which is produced in a mouse. You know, it's it's a million of human humanized antibody, a fully human antibody, which is uh, produced in vitro now in cultures, 
and which targets a, cell, a molecule on a cell surface. And it employs the uh, patients in the immune system to kill the cell by that mechanism. So it works through an immune mechanism. So that's the antibody. So then the targeted therapy would be uh, a chemical which actually, um, which actually aims at a certain signaling kinase, a protein which is necessary for cell to survive. So that would be targeted therapies such as erotinib or venetoclax. Can you use them concurrently? Yes. So you use chemotherapy with, with CD20 antibodies typically. Um, there are some... Um, so targeted therapies are also approved by themselves or in combination with uh, uh, antibodies. For example, venetoclax, rituximab is approved in relapsed CLL. Venetoclax, benetuzumab is approved in frontline CLL, uh, previously untreated CLL. Ibrutinib, benetuzumab is also approved in previously untreated CLL. So the question is, do those CD20 antibodies add something to targeted therapy, to ibrutinib or venetoclax? The reality is we actually don't know. So what we know is that rituximab does not add much to ibrutinib. But abinituzumab, the second generation glyco-engineered CD20 antibody, we actually don't have an answer for the, to that. Anyway, so it's a little bit confusing. It's still an evolving paradigm. But yes, you can use them together. You don't always have to. And uh, there are you know, some uh, semantic distinction, what we call what. And, um, and Dr. Roka, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think the um, the phrase novel agent, as these drugs have been around for longer, is going to become uh, less accurate because it's a little less novel. But um, I think that was a fantastic uh, overview of, of exactly what the therapies um, are doing. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. And so another question um, for Dr. Roker. Can you tell me about minimal residual disease? Would it make sense to use another drug to treat it? Absolutely. So minimal residual disease is a state where um, it's a test that we use to basically say, are there any CLL cells left or not? And we use a cutoff that's based on basically the testing, um, the technology that we have available. So most uh, studies that have looked at MRD or minimal residual disease have been those that are um, kind of time-limited therapies with the idea that after um, a certain amount of drug exposure, you check MRD. And we know that, that for patients who are able to have no disease left or undetectable minimal residual disease, they um, tend to go for a longer time before needing another therapy than those who still have detectable disease. Um, so it's still a little bit unclear as to how this is going to um, be used in the clinic setting. We know that achieving MRD um, undetectable after a certain amount of time um, does seem to help people uh, live without remission, without uh, relapsing for longer, but we don't know exactly what the effect of treating to an MRD endpoint, meaning treating until somebody achieves an MRD negative state, um, really is. And there are a lot of clinical trials ongoing that are looking at that that exact question. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Um, Denlaw, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I think that was a great overview. Um, I don't have anything to add. Okay, thank you. Excellent. All right. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Denlov. Um Are there specific cancer treatment facilities that specialize in difficult-to-treat CLL? Are there specific, I'm sorry, cancer? Are there, are there specific cancer treatment facilities or institutions oh. that specialize in difficult-to-treat CLL? Well, um, I, yeah, um, I, I guess uh, we, all, we all end up seeing difficult-to-treat CLL, and usually uh, that's where we heavily rely on uh, clinical trials and novel agents that we can uh, deliver through clinical trials. Um, um, there are certain centers which are particularly heavy on CAR T cell development, including Memorial Sloan Kettering, City of Hope, uh, the NIH. Um, 
Um, but yeah, so large centers certainly will have a lot of clinical trials on offer. You know, Dana Faber Cancer Institute, MD Anderson, uh, MSKCC. Um, anyway, so um, City of Hope. So, um, but um, I, I'd say you know a lot of centers of medium size and large size have fairly have pretty active CLL programs. Um, it really depends on individual needs. Thank you. And Dr. Roker, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that um, there are certainly centers that have lots of research going on, and um, if it's something that um, you're you're at all interested in, we're um, always happy to see people and and uh, interact with your healthcare team in whatever way is helpful. So. Um, for instance, at our center, we see patients sometimes as a one-time consultation and sometimes um, more regularly, and sometimes we take over care, and, and there are lots of setups in between that are all possibilities. But um, I think CLL experts are always um, happy to see patients and, and help providers um, closer to home really take the best care of patients possible. So if it's something you're interested in, certainly worth talking to your team about. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and um, so a question for Dr. Um, Danoff about CAR-T cell therapy. Um, is this available to those with refractory CLL? Yeah, it's available through clinical trials only right now. And could you say a little bit more about that? Just, I think there's kind of a lot of interest in Right. So, um, so basically, this this the CAR T cell product is approved for diffuse large basal lymphoma, transformed follicular lymphoma, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's not approved for CLL, <coughs> but it is currently in clinical trials <coughs> for this disease. And uh, depending on where you are geographically, you might want to identify a location where trials are open with this agent. It's basically the basically it involves collection of patients' T cell, introduction of a uh, vector which will then deliver those T cells uh, as cytotoxic agents uh, to CLL cells and thereby kill CLL cells. So um, it is somewhat similar to what we call autologous stem cell transplant, but uh, this procedure has uh, a different methodology and different risks. The two main risks are side kind of release syndrome when T cells become activated in a human body and uh, uh, produce multiple biologics and uh, some neurotoxicity but there are there are also other risks so it's it's really a long conversation it's uh, it needs to be a very well informed decision if uh, um, if uh, if that's being entertained uh, as an option the, those clinical trials are, have very strict enrollment criteria um, and I would, you know, if that's something which uh, is on the table, I would encourage you to uh, look up uh, the center near to you, um, um, yeah, and uh, speak speak to them in detail of what it's about. Thank you. Um, um, thank you so much. And um, Dr. Roker, do you wish to add anything? Yeah, and the... Um I think your doctor can certainly help you identify centers that might have CAR T trials open. Um, and often, if patients want to do their own research on where where trials might be open, clinicaltrials.gov is a great resource um, that is put out um, by the NIH to really help um, people know where clinical trials are available. So that might be a good resource. Excellent. And we will actually, um, you'll all be getting an evaluation after today's program. And the evaluation will include all the resources that were mentioned today that could be um, helpful to you um, to, um, to access that are credible resources. So we will include this one as well. It's a wonderful resource. Um, and I guess, Dr. Rucker, can you say a little bit about the, um, the, um, the center um, at uh, NCI that, uh, for cl that does clinical trials um, and I think is conducting clinical trials on, on CAR-T trials, just a little about how people can find out more about it? Or um, So the, the um, clinicaltrials.gov is really a kind of a centralized resource because all trials that need uh, that are ongoing are registered and part of that registration process is um 
receiving what's uh, basically a number, and getting that number gets you on the website. So all centers that are participating in clinical trials um, are registered through that same process. In terms of uh, the NIH, they have a the NCI has a, a center that's a medical center, much like other cancer centers, where they do have clinical trials ongoing. Um, and I am not um, totally aware of their current clinical trial portfolio, but I do know that um, they offer a lot of great options um, for patients, and certainly worth investigating if um, if that's of interest. Thank you. Um, this is really amazing, I, um, and this will probably be our last question. Um, so this has a question, and that's for Dr. Danlov. In what instance is watchful waiting a good idea for relapsed COL? Would it be better to treat right away? Um, no, at this point we do not have any evidence that treating CLL early, whether it's relapsed refractory or previously untreated, improves uh, survival. So therefore, it's always a good idea to do watch and wait until certain symptoms develop that we talked about, you know, B symptoms, anemia, thrombocytopenia, bulky lymphadenopathy. Uh, that is still a standard approach um, in, uh, in patients who have undergone treatment for CLL as well. Okay. And Dr. Broker, do you want to add anything to that as well? Yeah, exactly. Those same criteria that we talked about, the um, low hemoglobin, low platelets, big lymph nodes, big spleen, and symptoms are, are still what we use to guide um, initiation of treatment, whether in the frontline setting or the relapse refractory setting. And there's just one last uh, late-breaking question for Dr. Roker. Would it make sense to try letalimide um, or another off-label drug for refractory CLL? Um, it de certainly lenalidomide has been studied and, and has been shown to be um, effective in a small subset of patients. I think it depends on what medications have been tried before, but it's um, if if lots of other things have been tried and haven't um, haven't worked, it's certainly worth worth trying. Um, lenalidomide, lenalidomide can be given with or without rituximab. Um, and is considered one of our um, recommended regimens, so um, definitely an option for both um, older and younger patients with and without other medical problems. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Daniel, do you want to add? Anything to that? Yeah, we, in the in the new landscape, we use lenalidomide fairly infrequently. It's an option to consider, but uh, certainly a very individualized decision. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, and it's just an amazing call today. Um, uh, you both your presentations and and then also response to all these questions have been uh, uh, just um, and so wonderful questions from our participants as well. And I. Um, I want to thank you all for being on this call today. Um, and I, I know there are still questions in queue, so I actually um, I do want to kind of give you some options of where to go if you still have questions. Um, so one thing we want to stress is that asked a question if you asked a question today, if you heard an answer to a question, you still want to take that information back to your treating healthcare team because um, they really know you the best. They know all the details of your, you know, of your, of your. CLL, they know, uh, you know, all the, everything about you, and that was in that respect, it would be good to always start with them. And the healthcare team does include many other members of the team that can help you also with other issues that you may be concerned about as well. So they're often, in addition to your hematologist oncologist, there are other members of the team. There are oncology nurses, um, patient navigators, oncology social workers dietitians, other members of the team that also could be of enormous members of the team, rehabilitation medicine, a lot of different people who could possibly be helpful to you just on some of the day-to-day -day practical issues that you may be confronting. And then if you do want to check outside your institution for where you can go for help, so we have talked about um, the National Cancer Institute um, and have given you um, the website for clinical trials. Um, also, the National Cancer Institute does have a an 800 number, 800-422-6237, and you'll get that number actually um, also with your evaluation. And they also have a, um, a website, um, 
uh, cancer.gov, and that website has a live chat feature where you can post a question and ask your question. But I also want to mention that clearly um, the CLL Society is a wonderful resource to go to. First of all, they have the, um, the expert access program. We get a half-hour consult for free. That's a very helpful thing to have. Um, and also um, to visit their, their organization, it would go to clllsociety.org. Um, they actually specialize only in CLL, so I think that's a very helpful um, place to go. I also... Um, would be remiss if I did not mention the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is a wonderful resource for all of you as well. And there are a number of resources, blood cancer organizations that we are partnering with today that are also listed here that we'll be giving you in your evaluation form so that you'll be able to contact them. And for those of you who want to pursue further help from Cancer Care, you can simply contact us. And again, you'll be getting all that information from us. Perhaps most importantly, as we conclude today, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with CLL or with any type of blood cancer or cancer. We want you to now know that you're really part of a community of support and that you do not have to, you may sometimes feel alone and that's, you're entitled to feel that. Many people, that's quite normal. But nevertheless, there are resources out there for you. So when you quite don't know what to do, definitely try calling some of the resources we offer to you and, um, and hopefully um, you'll be able to get some support and help in addition to your healthcare team. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.